Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. As Rev. Kelly mentioned earlier, our assembly theme this month is Renewing Commitment. And today it turns out that this is an excellent day to, for the topic of commitment. For one thing, the fact that so many of us are here after losing an hour of sleep is a fine demonstration of commitment. And the fact that our congregation is still here and functioning and thriving on the two-year anniversary of that first pandemic shutdown that really speaks to commitment. And the churn of world events also makes it a good time to reflect on to whom and to what we are committed and why. One of the complicated things about commitments is that though they sound solid and reliable and maybe even eternal, making a commitment is actually taking a risk. Committing to a friendship or to a marriage or to a congregation, committing to an ideal or to a deeply held value, or to a newborn child. These are all leaps of faith. There is the certainty of the feeling and the uncertainty of the path. A commitment is the guardrails that keep you on the long highway, but sometimes you can only see as far as the next curve. Commitment means putting some of your human faith into an unseen future. And when we shut our congregation's doors two years ago this weekend, we were definitely dealing with an unseen future. We had no idea that that Sunday would be the first of 70 consecutive Sundays without gathering in person. I was the speaker at that first shutdown service, and I remember joking that just about the last thing I ever wanted to be was a TV preacher. <laughs> but as much as I deeply disliked speaking to the emptiness of this room or my even emptier home office, I realized that actually wasn't the last thing I ever wanted. The true last thing I ever wanted would have been to be completely cut off. The adaptations we had were infinitely better than nothing. And with the volunteers and technology in this congregation, we were extremely fortunate and continue to be. Two years ago, we had no idea where the path of our commitment would take us. But an impressive and humbling number of people have remained connected to this congregation, renewing their commitment despite the ups and downs. Making a personal commitment to a local, tangible organization like a congregation was more challenging during the pandemic. But such a commitment like that may be easier to wrap our primate brains around than the broader kinds of more abstract commitments that life may ask us to consider. For example, both humanism and our Unitarian Universalist heritage call on us to commit to our fellow human beings, period. Not just a congregation of a few hundred humans, but all of the humans. That's a big ask, but it's written right there in black and white. The most recent Humanist Manifesto from 2003 calls for peace, justice, and opportunity for all, with zero restrictions on that all. 
Similarly, the sixth UU principle, which we heard earlier, affirms and promotes the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. Like our universalist ancestors, who believed that every single person was going to heaven no matter what, contemporary UU thinkers are serious when they say all. All means all. But after living through two years of much pandemic-related overwhelm, two years that weren't even over when a harrowing new war started, is this kind of commitment really possible? Can all really mean all? To whom can we be committed when the world hurts everywhere, everywhere, everywhere? It's a lot. It's been a lot, and it's going to continue to be a lot. How might we stay grounded in the face of such daunting challenges? How might our small individual selves think about being committed to all? As a first answer, I will offer a word that I find helpful, and it's the most important word I learned in seminary. You may recall that I went into seminary after many years in journalism. Journalism is a field with a great volume of words, but a pretty limited variety because the vocabulary is aimed at the average reader. So when I started theological school, I learned a lot of fancy new words that would have never gone in the newspaper, like exegetical and hermeneutical and soteriological, all of which had value, except in the daily life of ministry. <laughs> the most valuable word I learned in seminary was not related to theology or its study. It was the word finitude. Finitude. It's sometimes pronounced finitude, but I learned it as finitude. And it simply means the quality or state of being finite, of not being unlimited. The word for me has been a helpful reminder that though the world's needs seem infinite, we are not. We're not helpless, but we're not omnipotent, and we're not infinite. And I think it's healthy to have that as a starting point when we contemplate commitment to all. Another helpful place to start is to not be daunted by ideals. Justice for all is very lofty. And why not aim high so we don't leave anyone out? But such a big goal can deflate us before we start. When a task seems too big, I'm reminded of this line from ancient rabbinical teachings. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to desist from it. I'm also inspired by the countless civil rights leaders who knew and still know that profound change takes generations. There is value in starting, even if you can't see the end, and there's value in keeping going. And as we consider the breadth of our commitments, another thing that I think is helpful to remember, to acknowledge and perhaps concede is that there are great numbers of people who are not committed to the well-being and justice for all. For starters, quite a few people are extraordinarily committed to themselves, even writing famous books with titles like The Virtue of Selfishness. Most people aren't that extreme, of course. More commonly, many people choose to limit their commitment to the circles of various sizes that they find themselves in families, neighborhoods, communities, political parties, affinity groups, nations. There's a lot of practical appeal to this kind of limited concern. 
it can be less exhausting and more fulfilling than trying to care for all. And there can be a lot of reinforcement for the choice to limit your commitment. For example, there are plenty of religious movements that are the opposite of those universalists. Movements that believe out of seven billion humans, only a tiny fraction, a chosen few, are blessed and saved. Why commit to folks outside your group when they're probably going to hell anyway? Limited commitment thinking also gets a big boost from capitalist-driven consumer culture. The message is, buy what you desire, and don't think too much about it. Don't think about the climate impact on millions of people around the world. Don't think about what happens in the Chinese factory where your object was made, or what happens in China as a whole. It's more complicated than that, of course, because there are enormous systems causing these problems, regardless of our individual choices. But not caring is a fashionable stance right now. Recently, the California billionaire Chamath Palihapitiya got in trouble for a podcast in which he declared, nobody cares about the Uyghurs. He was talking about the Olympics in totalitarian China, where the Uyghurs are a minority group that has faced re-education and genocide. Nobody cares about the Uyghurs. In one simple phrase, Palihapitiya dismissed those who do care about the Uyghurs, and he highlighted the reality that for most of the world, their plight is not enough to disrupt business as usual with China. The message of a consumer-driven society is don't care too much and don't commit to too many people or to too many principles because such commitments can get in the way of material desires and greed. Compassion is actually countercultural. And as we've seen, the war on Ukraine is raising all kinds of questions and quandaries about commitments and business as usual. A semi-famous Senate candidate in Ohio declared at the start of the war, I don't really care what happens to Ukraine one way or another. And he followed that up by describing any concern for Ukrainians as performative affection. This attitude reminds us that some would-be leaders and some actual leaders are so very far from caring about others, so very deep into their rationalized selfishness that they can't imagine anyone else having sincere concern for civilians caught in the middle of a war. Now, we are, of course, seeing an overall outpouring of support for Ukrainians. Images and videos have conveyed that this is a massive tragedy. The response has been heartening. Empathy is alive and well, and alliances of democracies have turned out to be much more robust than they may have seemed. When it comes to Russia, things are definitely and perhaps surprisingly not business as usual. And it's good to see such a reaction to a war, a war that is medieval in both its goals and its humanitarian impacts. But as many of you are aware, this charitable response has raised questions about whose lives matter, which kinds of refugees are acceptable, which kinds of people are worthy of compassion. Complexities and contradictions abound. A Ukrainian kid who traveled alone for hundreds of miles to the border to escape violence is lauded as a hero. Central American kids who travel hundreds of miles to our border to escape violence are not greeted the same way. 
Ukrainians who attack and kill their occupiers are cheered. Palestinians are viewed very differently. The United States itself exists as the product of a long and brutal invasion. And longer wars in other non-white parts of the world have received only a fraction of the news coverage of Ukraine. Now, it's not unexpected that the United States, with its significant European heritage and connections, would pay more attention to a war taking place in Europe. But when supposed journalists find it far more upsetting that blue-eyed and blonde children are suffering, and they actually say that on TV, the disparities raise fair questions about who's committed to whom and the global difficulties of caring for all. So we are living in swirling times with glimmers of world community amid immense challenges. How might we stay grounded and how might we sustainably live into the idea of being committed to all? Let me offer a few examples that might make a broader concern more possible. My shorthand for this is go big and go small. First, going big. One thing you can work on that truly helps all is to tackle climate change. It's affecting different countries and different communities in widely different ways, but no one will be unaffected. And your work will benefit some of the most vulnerable humans on our planet. And our, you know, a reminder that our individual, our individual lifestyle choices are important. I am as loyal a composter as there is. But enormous systemic changes are what's truly needed to transition away from fossil fuels and stem the rise of carbon. And such high-level changes only come about from organized, coordinated efforts that focus on power. This afternoon's Be the Spark training is an excellent example of learning how to be committed to all through climate justice. Another strategy for tackling huge generations-long issues is to have what I think of as a balanced social justice diet. What I mean by that is consider giving yourself a combo platter of sweeping long-term work mixed with shorter, more tangible tasks. You may not ever know whether your organizing and advocacy help save a glacier, a forest, or a beach. And the work for racial justice and true equity is similarly slow. That's where going micro and taking on something with a clearer beginning and end can help keep your spirits up. For example, members of this congregation have been working hard to help Afghan refugees get resettled into new lives here in Minnesota. Many of the tasks involved are familiar, specific, doable, and finite. They not only give satisfying feelings of making a difference, they actually do make a difference. And they can provide you sustenance for the longer hauls. Zooming back out again to big, if we dream of a world with, less changed with a less changed climate, and we dream of a world with fewer refugees, then we must also never ignore the rise of authoritarianism. The world right now is seeing in real time what a dictator can do to a neighboring country. And there are plenty of other authoritarian leaders who are letting conflict, conflicts fester, letting minorities suffer, and letting rainforests burn. There's not much any one individual can do about someone like Putin. 
But with the United States returning to a global leadership role, there is tremendous value in protecting democracy here at home, where there are plenty of threats to it on all levels of society. One of my personal activism projects right now is trying to help stop extremists from taking over the school board in my hometown. These well-funded candidates won a recent primary, and along with similar slates in neighboring communities, they may well be part of a takeover of numerous school districts. They have slick logos. They speak ominously about things like parents' rights and the dangers of wearing masks. They refuse to take part, they refuse to partake in traditional candidate forums, preferring to hold their own meet and greet events. This way they can write their own questions or not answer any questions at all. If they get into office and they follow the national models, we shouldn't be surprised to see anti-LGBTQ actions and gag orders on teachers and manufactured uproars over the teaching of racial history. So while I may not be able to do much as an individual to stop Putin, there's a chance that I may able to, might be able to help tap the brakes on the American version of the Christian nationalism that Putin espouses. American democracy is at incredible risk, but democracy is not over yet. And there are lots of small ways for you and me and all of us to nudge the balance of power and still make a, an impact on the big picture. Right before this talk, we heard a poem by Warsan Shire, a beautiful poem of naming and lament. As we near the close of this assembly on this strange pandemic anniversary, in these sobering wartime days, let us remember that action is the antidote to despair. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.